Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Attenton, attenton, which is, of course, Esperanto for Achtung, Achtung. That's right, we're resorting to made-up languages now. <laughs> now What's happened to Esperanto? No one's reading it. Well, no one's using it anymore, only 63,000 people worldwide, James, who would is have that understood so? that. Yeah. Okay. But I expect most of them are regular listeners to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. People interested in the obscure and the irrelevant, arguably. Bon venon to all of you. I mean, it's a bit pointless, isn't it? No, very pointless. But it's sweet, though. It it's is sweet, but I mean, you know, hope a tent on a tent on. I mean, you know, I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to work out that that means That's exactly attention. the point. Well, I know, but, you know, it's just... <laughs> right, by the way... What's wrong with hieroglyphics? Talking about pan-European harmony, we've just received a letter from the Dutch authorities concerning our driving infringement in Arnhem. God, it now, means another humiliation for me. So Last week it was the beer. It's the second, the second morning... <laughs> the and se- self-inflicted. I've it's really a bit embarrassed. of a fine too far. 700 euros for one wrong turn. So basically, James, explain, <laughs> explain what happened. Well, no, no, I'm really, really humiliated by this because I, I would pride myself on a man that can kind of, you know, read an OS map, no problem. You know, I can, I can navigate... Yeah. But I was on this, my bloody iPhone, uh, and and the road just forked, and it looked like I was going, I was going quite left when actually I was just veering slightly left as where I needed to be, and I went a bit too left and ended up in the bus lane, which you know, if you're Dutch, so is, is just such bad news. And we, at one point we pulled up behind this bus, and we we're feeling really conspicuous. There's this bus there behind us, a bus in front of us. There was nothing we could do. And this woman was on the uh, sitting at the bus station and she just put a line across her throat. Because <laughs> I was in the car behind. And now going, I understand what she yeah. meant. We're, I was in the car behind going, James, what, 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 yeah, no, what, really, what are I'm you really, doing? No, no, right? Because Waze had told us that we had to take, go out because we were going to drive over the road bridge and then back around th- through a bit of the island and then over the new road bridge. Because we were trying to get to... Um, uh, at the Urquhart House and the and the uh, uh, the Utrechtsweg, the, yes. the the point at which the the choke point of the Arnhem. That was battle. what we were doing. We were going leaving the bridge, weren't we? Yeah, we were going yeah. down the, the, the that big yeah. roundabout. Uh, anyway, just, I, I feel really ashamed and, and mortified by the whole thing. My well, thirty court, of course, never incurred that fine because they didn't get to the bus lane in Arnhem. <laughs> <laughs> no, they didn't, and right. I'm sure they did take a few wrong turns as well. Uh, <laughs> well it's General Gavin who took the wrong turn. Yeah. Remember, we're still stoking the General Gavin controversy. <laughs> anyway. Gavin, um, Gavin, 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 <laughs> Gavin, 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 Gavin. <laughs> so to pay for that, James, you're going to have to read a few more sponsors' messages. <laughs> <laughs> but just make sure you ask me before 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> right. Not when I've been at the oldest bar in Nijmegen <laughs> with RG. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, anyway, um, Al and I thought it might be fun to look at some of the culture around World War II today. Great. Um, always up for that. And you spoke brilliantly about Spike Milligan recently. And we're going to discuss his writings in a bit more detail. I mean, I know you're keen to do that. And, yeah. and I am too. And I've, I've, I've read um, the Mussolini one, My Part in His Downfall. And I thought it was... I was stunned. I thought it was really, really fantastic and yeah. hilarious. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what he's got such a great ear for, of course, is the soldier's banter. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's that kind of, it's the banter that blokes 
do to this day, isn't yeah. it? It's irreverent, it's piss-taking. Yeah. And, and it's also, it is really funny. I mean, it's not him being funny, necessarily. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's his yeah. mates being really funny. And it's, it's the stuff about the haircut. You know, who pays for her, Hitler's haircut? Yeah. I mean, I, the thing I, I find... I was laughing yeah, well, my going, does he t- did they what, charge him off? Bo- yeah, 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 he's got to pay a couple of bob for yeah. a haircut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing I love about it, or the thing I, th- I think is really interesting about it, is, is, after all, first of all, so it's a thing, it, it, it's Italy... Yeah, it's, it's Tunisia and Italy, North Africa and Italy. So all the and again, we've talked an awful lot about Northwestern Europe, and here we are in Italy. Yeah, and this, what happens to him is as real and dramatic and as ghastly as anything that happens to anyone anywhere else. Yes. So it it puts Italy firmly in your mind. The thing I think's really interesting about it though is he's a civilian soldier. He's conscripted. His mates all are as well. Yeah. They run into professional soldiers as part of the army. But what you've clearly got. And I think this is really, really interesting, is an army that has to cooperate with itself, that has yes. to cooperate with its men. It can't just tell them what to do. No. And, and no, no capital punishment anymore. And, and exactly. But you've, got, but you've got... So some of the officers... This is a really moving bit. And, and the, 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 the book... The, the bit I want to talk about is in Mussolini, My Partner's Downfall. But here's part in My Downfall, rather. And then the one before is Rommel Gunner Who. Yeah. And there's a, there's a bit in Gunner Who where one of the officers is... One of his officers is killed... And it's absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah. And 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 up to that point, there's a bit where he goes, this is the last time I was going to see him. And they're calling each other by their first names. He's not right, calling him sir. Yeah. And it's about that quite clearly, this isn't an army where you where you do as you're told, necessarily. Yes. It's an army which is a Having, having to cooperate with itself. But I think far, also, more, far more than perhaps you think of the 1940s and you think, well, it'd be old and it's class-ridden. And obviously it is class-ridden, it is old-fashioned. But what it isn't is, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir. And it's and, and, well, that's also very interesting because that's one of the criticisms always thrown about the Americans in the Second World War. They're all too casual. I mean, you can yeah. talk to sort of ex-British officers and they go, oh, you know, think about Americans. They're terribly casual, calling people by their yeah. Christian names and all the rest of it. And yet this is going on in, in the, in the British Army for exactly the same reasons it's going on in the, in the American Army. Yeah. Because they're, they're civilians who are being yeah. flung together. And, some, and, some, and you've got to make it work. Yeah, and you've really, got to make really, these guys motivated. There's, really, there's a really funny scene in um, um, where of all the... Um, goodbye soldier or where have all the bullets gone which is after the war ends there's a really funny bit General Alexander takes a massive parade after the end of war in, in Europe my hero and and he takes this enormous parade and he comes out and Milligan writes about it he says basically what happens is it immediately starts raining really heavily it's a downpour and there's all these men on a parade and Alex basically bolts into the building because he doesn't want to get wet and from inside the building there's a shout of dismiss like that and everyone, everyone runs away <laughs> to get out of the rain, laughing. And, the, and, the, and, and Milligan says, you know, what you have here is the... the, the and he says, the Anglo-Saxon, given any opportunity, will double up with laughter when faced with a ridiculous situation. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's, that's what you get in this book. I mean, the other yeah. thing is they're never hungry. Um, no. He doesn't like the food much, but he's never, ever hungry. No. Um, they have these amazing days in Tunisia where they where they go off in a lorry and they've got to go do something. So they take all day and they go and swim in an oasis and yeah. or they go to mountain <laughs> pools around of it. And, and and bugger about or they're sent to a beach to swim. So they're sent yeah. away from the front line and all this sort of stuff. And he re- and he says, you know, days like this will never be repeated. That sunset will live with me forever. Mm-hmm. I was living the most extraordinary life, this companionship and 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 all that. And I think. I, I mean, interestingly, when these were published, they were very much um, 
they were very much regarded as unreliable and and uh, and Clive James wrote a really excoriating yes. review saying that these books were shit and and that they were completely unreliable and you couldn't stick it together as a, as a telling of the story. But I think if you want if you want to know what it was like, yeah. And Milligan obviously comes with he's he's a he's a musician he's he's a trumpeter and a singer so he comes with a big cultural life and he's clearly very he was clearly. Uh, autodidact and very well read and all that sort and of thing. And his brother so, was an officer, wasn't he? Yeah, uh, yeah, in the Oxen Bucks, I think. Yeah. His brother ends up in Hamburg in 45. Mm. And his father was an officer in the Indian Army and then goes back into yeah. the REOC or the RESC, I can't remember which. Yeah, so his background's not working so class. Really, exactly, exactly. Well, not quite, no. no. But he's Raj, he's Raj Irish. He's yeah. an, basically a, an, an imperial Brit, for want of a better yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but obviously he ends up Irish because the... Because there's a whole fast later in his life where he can't get a British passport, so the Irish give him one. He's like, I served in the British Army, and you won't give me a passport. Well, you know, imagine that, like the, the Home Office <laughs> fucking up a thing like that. I mean, who thought that used to happen and maybe still does? Anyway, the point, but I think the, what's really good about these books, and interestingly, um, Adrian Wheel, who's a He's yeah. a writer, soldier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And wrote, was written well. a brilliant history of the mate. SS, a good friend of yours. He said the Milligan books are one of the reasons he joined the army because he's, he saw a compassionate, he tweeted this, he said, I saw a compassionate organisation even in the worst of certain most terrible situations and an organisation that's essentially compassionate, which is very interesting, you know, because, because it's, if, if, if you come at it from war is horror and war is hell and the 1940s is a, is a class-bound society and... Surely things were tougher in the old days and all that sort of thing. These books are really illuminating. And I, 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 yeah, I mean, yeah. I was just going to say that you know, I mean, one, one of the things that's that's so memorable again about Quartered Safe out here, you know, George MacDonald, yeah. Fraser of Burma, and also Memoirs of Rifleman or Recollections of Rifleman Bowlby, which is yeah. also Italy. Yeah, is it's the men, it's the camaraderie, it's yeah. the friendship, it's the yeah. banter, it's the humour. Yeah. Interspersed with these really shocking and upsetting moments yeah. of tragedy, yeah, and you yes, know that's what, that's what resonates, and you suddenly you suddenly go, I completely empathise with this. Yeah. I completely get why these people are because there's reacting a moment, there's a, the moment there's a moment where um uh, in in because he was on um. He was was he on mediums or heavies? Uh, um, he, he was an artilleryman. Yeah, he's, uh, he's a gunner. He's a gunner, but but um, he was a wireless operator. So uh, Milligan was trained as a wireless operator. So what he'd have to do is go forward yep. to the OP and operate the observation post and operate the wireless. So his hairiest moments are always going forward, going up, to, going front. up, going past the infantry <clears throat> sometimes, past the tanks, and sitting in a in a place that the Germans were obviously looking for. Um, to take out because he was calling in fire. And yep. there's, sometimes he's down at the battery and sometimes he's forward. And there's a moment where one of the battery guns has a, um, a, an early detonation and its shell goes off just after leaving the gun and kills the men on the gun yep. and injures loads of people. And that's just this moment of... Cause, because you do, have, like you say, you've got this banter that's relentless and funny and you feel like you understand their friendships and you're part of the group and they're all into music and they're all trading tunes and they're always looking on the lookout for a piano. He's often He often gets in a Jeep and goes, try finds a piano, you know. Yeah, and yeah, all yeah. He, he's looking for Beckstein, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. The all, all the time, you know, there's all this going on. Yeah. And and when this when this when they have this detonation on the gun, you know, this early detonation, whatever they call it, um, the, suddenly you're... you're shocked into this moment of, of absolute horror you know guy running around with his hair on fire um, uh, uh, no one knowing what's happened no one knowing who's a dead or alive and wanting to find out and whether they've lost friends and you it, and th- that's why these books are so I think are so 
are so good. Yeah. And and he he he, he writes beautifully and describes things beautifully. And I would you know I would if you can you can you can read all the chaps on maps books you want. All your arrows and all your f- front lines and all your blue, red and blue you want. But if you want to kind of, and they are unreliable and he says so, but if you want to get the, the, uh, the, the feel of the thing, these Milligan books are amazing. I was thinking about it. You, know, you, you and I should try and write a screenplay for this, for a, a drama series. Well, I think they did. I think did there they? was a I mean, movie. It would be so I think, good. But I think there is a movie. Well, why don't we do a TV series? But a TV brilliant. series of this would be amazing, of Milligan's progress, basically. It would be incredible. Yeah. But, but what I want to do, though, anyway. um, if you'll allow me, is to read the moment <clears throat> where he's mortared and he... And he yes. And, he and, the, and they say just before he goes up there, go, go, whatever you do, if the mortars haven't start firing, you've had it. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, so... Um, uh, and the interesting thing about this as well is when you, when you read about battle fatigue, the way Milligan tells the story of the moment where he realises he can't carry on where he can't carry, he doesn't realise anything, it just happens to him. Yeah. It's completely beyond his control, that's it, the point. Yeah, is it fits. So he's been working really hard and he's permanently exhausted and they've been digging and digging and digging and he's abs- He's had no sleep, yeah. he's completely worn out, so he's got nothing left in the tank. Yeah. And I should give you the background to the... Yeah. You know, but yeah. After so, you've done it, give okay. me, I'll give you the background okay. to the... To I was the, almost numb with fatigue and my piles had started to bleed. So he was really tortured with piles, Milligan. They come up again and again in the book. Anyway, I should never have volunteered... One of the lads makes breakfast while I'm eating it. Jenkins tells me, Bombardier, I want you to take Gordon, Howard, Birch and Ballard to the OP with fresh batteries in a 22 set. Great. All I have to do is carry a 50-pound battery to the top of a mountain. Anything else? Like, how about a mile run before in medieval armour? Ballard apparently knows the way. At 900 hours, we put on Arctic packs and strap on one battery each. We set off single file on the road towards Castle Forte, which sits in the near distance on a hillside full of Germans. We turn left off the road into a field. We pass a Sherman tank, a neat hole punched in the turret. A tank man is removing kit from inside. Laying on a ground sheet is the mangled figure of one of the crew. What a mess, says the tank man, in the same tones as though there was mud on the carpet. I grinned at him and passed on. Above us, the battle was going on full belt. Coming towards us is Thornton, dear old 35-year-old Thornton. He looks tired, he has no hat, and is smoking a pipe. Hello, what's on? He explains he's been sent back. I'm too old for all that, Lark. I kept falling asleep. I asked him the best way up. He reaffirms. You got up a stone-lined gully. When it ends, start climbing the hill. It's all stepped for olive trees. Of course, he added, if you're in the gully and they start mortaring, you've had it. Yeah. Thanks, I said. That's cheered us up no end. He bid us farewell and we went forward. We reached the gully. In a ravine to the left were infantry, all dug into the side. They were either resting or in reserve. So far, so good. We reach the end of the stone gully and start climbing the step mountain. Each step is six foot high, so it's a stiff climb. Crump, crump, crump. Mortars, we hit the ground. Crump, crump, crump. They stop. Why? Can they see us? We get up and go on. Crump, crump, crump. He can see us. We hit the deck. A rain of them fall around us. I cling to the ground. The mortars rain down on us. I'll have a fag. That's what. I'm holding a pack of woodbines. There is a noise like thunder. It's right on my head. There's a high-pitched whistle in my ears. At first I black out and then I see red. I'm strangely dazed. I was on my front. Now I'm on my back. The red was opening my eyes straight into the sun. I know if we stay here, we'll all die. I start to scramble down the hill. They're shouting. I can't recall anything clearly. Next, I was at the bottom of the mountain. Next, I'm speaking to Major Jenkins. I am crying. I don't know why. He's saying, get that wound dressed. I say, what wound? I'd been hit on the side of my right leg. 
Why did you come back? He's shouting at me and threatening me. I can't remember what I'm saying. He's saying, you could find your way back, but you couldn't find your way to the OP. Next, I'm sitting in an ambulance and shaking. An orderly puts a blanket around my shoulders. I'm crying again. Why? 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 Next, I'm in a forward dressing station. An orderly gives me a bowl of very hot, sweet tea. Swallow these, he says. Two small white pills. I can't hold the bowl for shaking. He takes it from me and helps me drink it. All around are wounded. He's rolled up my trouser leg. He's putting a sticking plaster on the wound. He's telling me it's only a small one. I don't really care if it's big or small. Why am I crying? Why can't I stop? I'm getting lots of sympathy. What I want is an explanation. I'm feeling drowsy and I must have started to sway because next I'm on a stretcher. I feel lovely. What were in those tablets? That's the stuff for me. Who wants food? I don't know how long I'm there. I wake up. I'm still on the stretcher. I'm not drowsy, but I start to shiver. I sit up. They put a label on me. They get me to my feet and help me to an ambulance. I can see really badly wounded men. Their bandages soaked through with blood. Plasma is being dripped into them. When we get to one of the Red Cross trucks, an Italian woman, all in black, young, beautiful, is holding a dead baby and weeping. Someone says the child has been killed by a shell splinter. The relatives are standing by looking out of place in their ragged peasants' clothing amid all the uniforms. An older woman gives her a plate of homemade biscuits of no possible use, just a desperate gesture of love. She sits in front with the driver. I'm in the back. We all sit on seats facing each other. Not one face can I remember. Suddenly, we're passing through our artillery lines as the guns fire. I jump at each explosion. Then a gesture I will never forget. A young soldier next to me with his right arm in a bloody sling put his arm around my shoulder and tried to comfort me. There, there. You'll be all right, mate. Right, we're going to take a break. Let that sink in. Uh, pay the Dutch authorities. We're back in a moment. <laughs> I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, <laughs> or people will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. 
welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Right, um, so... Yeah, it's absolutely stunning, isn't it? It, it really is. An incredible piece of writing. Mm. Um, you really feel you're right there in the middle of it. You completely... You know, if you're, he's being mortared and... Yeah. And he's injured and and he can't control himself. It's it, it's right. It absolutely paints the picture. Yeah, and I mean, this happens on I think it's like the twentieth, twenty something of of, of January, nineteen forty four. Yeah, and it's um, so what's happening? In, where, what's, well, so what's so, happening so the where? whole the whole thing in, in in Italy is just sort of really ground to halt because you know they invade Italy on the assumption that Hitler's going to retreat to the Pisa Rimini line, which is you know one hundred fifty miles north of Rome, something yeah. like that. Um, to, to what becomes known as the Gothic line. And that is the one bit where the Apennines, they, they kind of sort of veer like a spine kind yeah. of um, towards the northwest. Yeah. And it's the one bit where every part of the peninsula is covered by mountains. Yeah. So that's why it's an obvious place to put the Gothic line. And, and, and they know this because they've intercepted some Enigma traffic, which suggests that that's what Hitler's going to do. But then the Germans put up quite a good fight. Kasserine puts up, who's the commander-in-chief of the German yeah. forces in, in, in the south in Italy, puts up quite a good fight at Salerno. And actually Hitler then changed his mind and goes, oh, no, actually, we're, we're going to fight wherever you are. And the point is, the whole, the whole reason they've invaded is the, the main reason. Well, it's twofold. First is because it looks like they're going to have an easy victory and get into Rome by Christmas. And, you know, what's not to like psychologically, yeah. politically, Everything, you know, militarily, that's yeah. a good thing to do. And the second ring is because they want to get the airfields around Foggia. Foggia is one sort of flat bit in the kind of mid two-thirds of the way down sort of southern bit um, uh, from which they can continue to tighten the noose of the strategic air campaign. Yeah. They can put 15th Air Force there yeah. and, and they can bomb, you know, Plesti and all the rest yeah. of the, the oil fields in Romania. And it is and it's the airfields which is the number one priority. So Rome is kind of second priority, Airfields of Foggia is the number one priority, and that means that they get the priority of build-up. Yeah. And because stuff is already being moved to, you know, they're getting ready for, they're still intending to invade southern France's Operation Dragoon, and because yep. they're getting ready for Normandy, yep. Overlord, and all the rest of it, a lot of stuff is already being taken out of the Mediterranean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So already, although it is still the primary theatre at the moment, because it's the only one where they're actually active, it is already the secondary theatre, because the yeah. primary theatre is it's one that hasn't actually being begun downgraded, yet. Yeah. yeah, it's being downgraded. And, of course, when they're planning all this in August 1944, it's absolutely scorcho, you know, the, it's sort of azure blue skies. 43, not, I mean, planning... 43, 43, yeah, 43, rather, yeah. And, and uh, you know, there's not a cloud in the sky, it's really hot, they're kind of planning this amongst the olive groves and citrus groves. And, you know, when you're thinking of Italy and, you know, the Amalfi Coast and all yeah. the rest of it, and Naples and, and Pompeii and Vesuvius, all you're thinking about is sunshine and grapes and, yep. and lemons yep. and, uh, and olives. And, of course, the moment, it just happens to be... I mean, it's one of the really extraordinary features of the Second World War that they just coincided with really miserable winters yep. in in Europe. And Italy was no exception. And very soon after they arrived there, it started to rain, and then it started to yep. really rain, and then it started to really pour. And, of course, the problem with going moving north north up to Italy is you're, is you're moving up through this narrow peninsula, which is really, really mountainous. And where there's mountains, there's rivers. And yep. the rivers are always moving to the sea. So they're moving. Uh, the rivers are moving at 90 degrees to the axis of your advance yes. northwards up to Italy. So there's endless rivers to cross. There's endless rivers across. Water because courses, all sorts of stuff. All that. Because and there's fact, very, very few roads because it's mountainous. Because, because that, in, that story, um, the thing that Milligan, he has to take a pontoon bridge to get to this forward position. That's right. To, to, get, to, to get to where yes. the OP is. Yes. So, so there's the, the water, water features, and he's often... There's the thing where they, they, they find a nice gully and they set up a bivy in it and then they 
and then they uh, get washed right. out because it's raining. And the, one of the features is it's raining the entire time. It, literally the entire time. And it's really cold and miserable. And I forget, it's mountains. You know, it is just yeah. mountains. So there's very few roads. So you've got to do these roads. So if, from a defensive point of view, if you're Germans, this is an absolute cinch to defend because yeah. all you've got to do is blow up the bridge, lay lots of sort of IEDs, what we'd now call yeah. IEDs, mines, booby traps and stuff on the roads leading up to them. And you're going to hold up your enemy, yeah. particularly because we're mechanised and particularly because we care of the, of the, of the lives of our men. Yeah. So therefore, you know, we're not just going to kind of bludgeon our way through. So you're going to take it carefully. You can just see how everything gets canalised yeah. into these narrow passes and these narrow roads. So, you know, I mean, yeah. the interesting thing is that if you look at, if you look at Google Earth and, or Google Maps and you've got satellite, the satellite version, I mean, you just look at it. You can just see it's just mountain, mountain, Well, I've mountain. got this up right now with the, the terrain. Okay, so there you go. Yeah. And it- so, so you can see, I think, that, you know, even today in 2019, there's all these little narrow roads going through it, but there are even fewer then. And, of course, they're not tarmacked. They're metal, yeah. but they're not tarmac. So what what they are on that, by today's standards, they're called Strada Bianca. So they're these kind of sort of clay and shingle roads. Yeah. And in summer, they get incredibly dusty and there's, you know, grit and stuff going everywhere. And in winter, they just turn into a quagmire. And this, this is what happens. And what you've got to do is, Germans have blown the bridge. So what you have to do is create a ramp off the road because you want to keep the, you want to bridge it as close to the original bridge as you possibly can. And then put a Bailey Bridge across it, yeah. and then create another ramp up the other side. So you've got to sort of create a bit of road off the main road yeah. to, to meet the start of the Bailey Bridge. And the whole thing just goes, you know, just grinds to a halt. Yeah. And this is why it takes so long. And of course, by winter, of, by December 1943, everyone's just thoroughly browned off. You know, yeah. they're browned off in Washington, they're browned off in London, you know, the chiefs of staff are browned off, everyone's sort of slightly finger pointing. It's no one's fault. It's not Alexander's fault. It's not Monty's fault. It's not Mark Clark's fault. It's just circumstances have played out in a way that they hadn't expected. They hadn't expected Germany to fight for every single yard. Well, yeah. And they hadn't expected the weather to be so bad. Well, because it's it's this recurrent allied problem of of expecting... Well, well, expecting the the Germans to be a rational rational actor. Right, exactly. And also, at times, taking too much of what they read in Enigma transcripts, you know, the ultra, that the the guys at Bletchley Park are doing. But just imagine you're Spike Milligan, or imagine you're part of the poor bloody infantry. You've got to end up slogging through this. So you yeah. go forward on your trucks, then you've got to deploy. And what the Germans do very cleverly is they have these sort of main lines of defence. And um, there's quite a big defensive line on, on the Volturno, uh, one of the big rivers they've got to get across. Then they put little kind of pickets out there just to slow up the advance. So lots of booby traps, lots of IDs, lots of kind of machine guns from, you know, overlooking passes and all the rest of it, just to slow them up, make it all. all the while they're building their next major defensive line, which is the Gustav line. This runs across the entire width of, um, of, of, of Italy. And the, the key point is the Monte Cassino massive, yeah. which overlooks the, Viri, the Liri Valley, which the Liri goes up towards towards Rome. But running across, the Liri flows into the Gariano. Yeah. And the Rapido comes down from another little valley from the mountains, the centre of the, of Italy, down towards the Gariano. And they both converge into the Gariano. Yeah. The Gariano then runs down to the sea, runs sort of in a southwesterly yes. direction from Casino. And that is where Spike Milligan is. He's on the Gariano. He's further south. So he's in, in yep. the kind of Fifth Army bit rather than the Eighth Army bit yep. at that stage. And... It is absolutely miserable because they're having to do a lot, you know, because what you've got to do to get forward is you've got to get onto the high ground, get the enemy off the high ground, which means you've got to climb up mountains. Uh, where there's mountains, the soil is incredibly thin. You're trying to dig in and you can't really, and you're furiously trying to dig in and it's just hopeless. Yeah. Um, and, of course, what that means is when mortars come down or artillery shells come down, 
the effects of that are much worse because you're less low under the surface of the ground, um, but also you've got lots of splinters of rock rather than soil or, yeah. you know, in the case of Dunkirk, sand. Yeah. You've got these little shards of very hard stone flying everywhere. And any single one, could, it could nick you on the shoulder yeah. or it could slice off your ear. Or, or cut your throat. Or cut your throat. Yeah. You know, it, it's just, it's completely sod's law as to yeah. how it does. And it's just completely debilitating. And there is something about being exhausted all the time, not having enough sleep, being wet, you know, if it's trench foot time, yeah. you know, people are getting trench foot as much as they are here as they were in the First World War in the trenches. It, it, you know, it's casual violence, but brutal violence. And, you know, every man, doesn't matter who he is, has a bank of courage. Yeah. And when that bank of courage is used up... That's that. That's that. You can build it up again. You can recreate, you can put more, more credits in your bank. Yeah. But you have to... You have to do that. Because you can't do anything about it. And I remember, I remember this guy, Reg Harris, who was in the third Karlstrom Guards in Italy. I remember him telling me about this time where, you know, they, every time they attacked, they'd take it in turns for the lead platoon to, you know, take it in turns for who would be the lead platoon. And there was this guy who um, he didn't particularly like, but it was his turn to go. And he, and he saw him and he said, you, you know, you better get going. And this guy was just absolutely shaking. He was in complete state. And he said, oh, look, mate, you know, pull yourself out of the line, go and see the MO, you're, you're absolutely stuffed, mate. And he goes, no, 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 I'm absolutely fine, I'm absolutely fine. And he goes, honestly, just just pull yourself out of yeah. the line. This guy goes, no, I'm not going to. Don't don't say a word to anybody. Anyway, the attack goes in, and they're waiting to go in, and this guy just stands up and goes, ah, shouts and charges, probably gets cut down and killed. Uh, and he said what was interesting about that is he said his fear of letting himself down in front of his mates yeah. was greater than the fear of being killed. But he said... His bank was up, you know, he, he, he was but empty. That, that's what Milligan it. goes on to describe, is he doesn't want to be away from the battery. He doesn't, no. want, doesn't want to miss his mates, but he also wants help and he wants an answer. Yeah. Anyway, John, we have a question. But um, please, if, if, you, uh, uh, if <laughs> yeah. you've enjoyed that little bit of Milligan, that, that's from Mussolini, his part of my downfall. The, the books are absolutely amazing. I'm sure some Still of you read print. them before, but they're, they really are... Yeah, um, they're all in print. Incredibly vivid. Uh, uh, description of, of 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 life in the army and he you know starts at the start of the war and he, he goes to the end of the war and I, I I've, i'm just i'm in the one of the post-war ones where he's just taken the train from naples to home Amazing. you know first time Amazing. since his mum hasn't seen him since 1935 and he gets home and she says you're how are you and he goes i'm fine how are you uh, <laughs> well actually just while we're on that's this that's basically it while we're on this i remember um uh um my mate Stan, who was a tank man in North Africa, got very badly wounded at uh, really, um, City Rizeg. Yeah. And then got wounded again in Italy. Um, and after that second wound where he got, where he got, got hit in the neck uh, and thought he was going to die, thought he was going to bleed to death, but didn't. He, he got home, he got back to the Wirral and he saw his, his sister. And his sister was, you know, when he left her, mm. she had been a child and now she was all grown up. Mm. And his mum had gone completely grey. Right. And he sort of goes and visits his old school. There's no one there. Yeah. There's none of his mates are there. The whole, every, everything, everything which has been sustaining him yeah, yeah. all that time is just absolutely well, gone. Well, Milligan says, I wanted to go back to 1939, but 1939 had gone. I suppose I've always wanted to get back to 1939. Yeah. Well, it, it, that's exactly that. A friend of mine's grandfather, he was in 8th Army for the whole war um, and lived in Mitcham, and when he got back, he walked from uh, Waterloo Station to Mitcham, which is, I think, seven or eight miles, and went to the pub before he went home, went and had a pint before he went to see his wife. 
Amazing. These tiny little stories. Anyway, we have one question from yep. John who says, love the podcast. How historically accurate was the BBC series LOLO? Well, it's good that we have this question because we were all just in danger of getting just a little bit morose there yeah. and a little bit sort of down. And, and now what we want is obviously a really, really sensible question. <laughs> And actually, well, I, I replied think, to this on Twitter, and I, yeah, I, I, said it was a, I said it was a standard bearer for authenticity. You see, I think it's a historically accurate series about the 1980s. If you want to know about <laughs> 1980s culture, it's not, going to, it's not going to tell you a single thing about the Second World War, but if you want to know about what people thought of the Second World War in the 1980s... Yeah, I mean, I mean Hairflick's jacket wasn't even leather, it was, it was plastic. Oh, God almighty. That's the illusion shattered. Yeah. Right, well, that's all we've got time for um, on uh, We Have Ways. If you've got any questions, hashtag We Have Ways or send them to James. Uh, you're James1940 on Twitter, on the app yep. James1940. Yep. I'm at Al Murray. Um, the hashtag We Have Ways. Uh, don't forget to tell us that you love the show. Because <laughs> we, we, our egos need feeding. Yeah, yeah, it's terrible, <laughs> terrible crippled egos here. You, well, you know what I'm going to say now, don't you? Adiao di me. Uh, which, of course, is um, uh, uh, Esperanto. Uh, goodbye from me. Yeah, and I'm going to do a little bit as well. Gisla Sevka Tempo. Oh. Do you like a little, yeah, little flourish? Yeah, like Tempo. Very strong. <laughs> <laughs> which basically means till next time in Esperanto. Fantastic. Ta-ra. Toodaloo.